what that sort of opened my eyes to and taught me about was the the whole process and the end product in in terms of what the ultimate aim is um and then I quickly sort of began to realize that I'd completely overestimated my sort of role in, in a team. And Sports science, strength and conditioning, high performance coaching. Welcome to the Decoding Excellence Show. Today's show is brought to you by Vaud Performance. If you haven't checked out the website yet, Stop this show immediately. Head over to the website, vaudperformance.com, and begin immediately looking through the resources. They're the makers of the Nord board, the dashboard, the groin bar, and they are some incredibly smart minds in the world of performance technology, tools, rehabilitation, and performance evaluations. Whether it is performance training, testing, evaluation, screening, or just simply return to play protocols from a pre-benchmarking, pre and post injury, check them out. They are incredibly smart guys and they will equip your facility with the tools that you need to be successful. Thank you again for the support and please check out their website, vaudperformance.com. Today on the show, we have Amish Monroe, a U21 sports scientist, strength and conditioning coach at Ali Football Club in Dubai. This is a monster of an episode today, and I took a lot away from Amish and his conversation regarding tactical periodization and some of the lessons that he's learned along his coaching journey. Like so many of us, the successes that he had very early on and some of the things he's had to navigate through his career that lent to the lessons and the wisdom and the experiences that he now currently holds. If you have any interest in technology or soccer or football periodization, this is an episode that you do not want to miss because this is a incredibly smart coach and you will take a lot away from this show similarly like I have. So without further ado, with, an, with enough waffling from me, Let's uh, let's jump right into the conversation with Amish Monroe. Amish, welcome to the show, man. How are you? I'm very well, Adam. How are you, mate? I'm doing really well. Just finished up a training session uh, with some of uh, one of our teams here, and empty gym. The lights are half shut off. It's it's cold outside, rainy, sort of miserably depressing for what is otherwise spring out here in the middle of America, Wichita, Kansas. How about yourself? I'm good, mate. I'm a bit of a polar opposite at the moment. I'm sporting some sunburn. Um, so fresh off the beach, training session this evening. Um, Sunday was pretty good for me. Yeah, if you can include beach and Sunday, you're you're pretty much winning over a large percentage of other uh, fitness and, and sport coaches that are like myself that – it is hundreds, if not thousands of miles away from a coastal uh, barrier body of water. So there's, you know, like you're not going to get much of uh, much uh, sympathy from me uh, hosting a sunburn, man. That sounds great. No, mate, I'll, I'll accept the sunburn if it includes beach. It's not a problem at all. Yeah. So, hey, I uh, I wanted to have you come on the Decoding Excellence show because uh I obviously being active on social media and Twitter, I constantly come across the great things that you post and you post everything from what you're currently doing with your guys. Um, and we'll get into training certainly, 
uh, and your background here, but research, you know, what's the best practices, whether it's injury prevention or performance enhancement and, and more so than just looking and sharing the research, it appears to be through the videos and the pictures and the things that you share that you're crossing the barrier or crossing the gap and you're applying the research, which I, I absolutely freaking love. And I'd love to explore a little bit of that on the show. But before we jump into it, I'd love because obviously the, the demographic that listens to this show, um, collegiate strength and conditioning coaches, collegiate and professional sports scientists in America right now. And we're we're trying to grow it uh, internationally here. So for people that might not be familiar with your role um, as a fitness coach, U21s out in Dubai, as a emphasis on sports science. Can you provide a little bit of a background for this audience as far as what you're currently up to and, and how you got into that role through education and, and sport uh, athletics and, and what led you to where you're currently at? Yeah, so if I attack, attack the uh, education portion of that, so... I did uh, my first degree was uh, at St Mary's University in London, and it was a it was a BSc in strength and conditioning science. So that was the that was the path I chose to go down uh, almost immediately. Um, from there, I went and did a, a postgraduate degree at the University of Bedfordshire in sports performance. Along the way, I've had a variety of internships at Norwich City, Peterborough United. Um, I was lucky enough to work in China for a year. Um, at a football club or a soccer club i don't know how we're going to proceed with that but um but yeah football club out in china for a year and then uh since 2015 i've been in dubai with alakli football club um working with their under 21 team uh looking after their sort of sports science and strength and conditioning program excellent and you know with if you could sort of fill in the gaps a little bit as far as that, uh, you know, maybe less from an from a educational standpoint, but just some of the things as you've proceeded up through sport from internship to internship to opportunities to work um, with in China to what your current role is. What are what are some of the things, you know, like the the various roles and steps that you've taken uh, to gain those internships and, you know, like, I know this is a wide ranging question, but what, uh, you know, what are some of the things that really resonate with you, uh, as far as what you've learned at those various stops along the way? Well, I guess the first thing that came into my head when you were introducing that was initially as a, as an undergrad, it was putting myself out there. So putting myself out there to as many people as I could trying to sort of touch base with them and see what they had to offer potentially in terms of internships or advice. Um, and then from that came about the Norwich City uh, internship where I had a host of great mentors there. So I immediately sort of was in a in a group of people that were able to really help me out. Um, and off the back of that came a lot of great things. So from, from there, from my academy internship, I managed to go to Peterborough on a first team internship. So there was sort of a natural progression there from academy to first team. Um, and then the Chinese opportunity came off the back of my work at Norwich, where the head of sports science had uh, previously worked in China and had asked if I wanted to go out there. Um, and as I was an unpaid intern and it was a paid role, it, it sort of made sense. And, 
and that was um, and that was sort of a, a great. I was re- I was really thankful for the guys at Norwich, and it, it really liberated my sort of I guess you'd say the, the, putting myself out there paid off is what I'm trying to say, and and be, putting the work in at Norwich as an unpaid intern, it sort of paid off, and yeah. those guys, my mentors really helped me out, and a lot of people speak about sort of trying to pay it forward. And when you're a young guy breaking through, that's real difficult because you don't have a lot to offer those around you initially. Now you do in terms of the work you're able to offer, but in terms of opportunities and things like that, you can't really offer people too much. It's more just your labor. So be, uh, getting that from those guys was awesome. And I'll sort of be forever indebted um, to them for that. Um, and then Again, I, I got helped out in Dubai by a friend, uh, an English performance analyst who was uh, who's here at Alali, and he put put me forward for a role. So again, it's you sort of you have to you have to call in favors um, in this industry when you're a young guy, and then be very prepared to to pay it back when 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 you can to to the guys that do help you out. To bridge on that, I mean, it's it's very similar to what we see in the collegiate sector here in America as you go from one sort of collegiate internship to another, and then eventually you have your first potential paid role as a graduate assistant. And, uh, you know, I, I remember just, a, you know, reflecting back on my own internship experiences like yourself. I mean, you don't have much else that you can pay forward outside of just the hard work that you do. And then eventually you become a graduate assistant or you get an academy role that's paid and then you work your way and it's still paying your dues. And then eventually you're in a position where you can hire others. And, and hopefully that experiences of, you know, humbling of, of recognizing that you don't have much, much to offer as a young guy. It allows you to then pay it forward to them. Um, but you spoke about your mentors um, and how, it was these individuals that sort of stuck their neck out, maybe showed you the ropes, as we all have various mentors in our life. But um, do you rem- like? Can you remember? Can you reflect on any particular moments where uh, you know there was wisdom that they shared, or something that they did that really resonated with you professionally that you still sort of emulate today in your own various roles or carry forward? Um, whether it's teaching other, you know, whether it's the, the, the athletes that you work with or other sort of support staff that you come in contact with. Is there anything that still resonates with you uh, from those mentors? Um, yeah. So my my sort of direct boss at Norwich City within the academy was a guy called Chris Lorkin. Uh, he's since moved on to Aston Villa Football Club. And then he's since moved on to um, Northampton's uh, Cricket County Cricket Club. And he was he was awesome to me. He he basically gave me a, a completely holistic grounding and introduction into strength and conditioning in in football in an applied setting. Um, so he gave me an inordinate amount of information and applied skills to then go and present in my own uh, sort of philosophy and applied work. And also his boss. Mike Watts, who was the head of sports science at the whole football club, he was the guy that took me took me to China. So again, it was Chris's uh, sort of investment in me and recommendation off the back of what I sort of helped him out with at the club that got up to the top man that was Mike and then got me across to China. So from a skills point of view, like I can't even begin to explain what 
Lorks gave me really because it it was awesome. Like the the amount of information he was able to give me and his openness with that um, was with the way he sort of steered me through was was awesome. Um, and then obviously off the back of that, he he lied to Mike and gave a glowing report. <laughs> um, so I was lucky enough to get a, get a paid opportunity off the back of that. So um, those two guys, Chris Lorkin and Mike Watts, were were awesome at sort of helping me progress out of my undergraduate degree it's cliche to say that we all stand on the shoulders of giants but i think specifically within this sort of young profession that we're in um i mean we really have to pay understand that there's these mentors these pivotal people that sort of pave the path for younger strength conditioning fitness coaches sports scientists to come in i mean i think we owe a real debt of gratitude to these people that to uh, that's helped us carry forward um carry forward the profession you said a couple things in there that really resonated with me and that that your mentors provided you sort of this framework of this holistic integrative model or approach to training and i i see it common in strength conditioning at the collegiate world where you you kind of go into a mentorship be right a you become a apprentice if you will and you learn the craft of whatever mentor it is um whether that's here in the states a olympic lifting oriented a high intensity training approach a quote-unquote functional approach whatever approaches disciplines modalities you might prescribe to but what really resonated with me when you said holistic integrated is that i think right now this is sort of where the profession, I think, best practices is, is understanding that we need to work together and we need to work in these multi-disciplinary teams. Um, was that always the case when you like when you first arrived? Have they been sort of this holistic, integrative approach or was was this something that your mentor was changing organizationally and then sort of? by proxy you've learned um and have you carried that approach to all the various different football clubs and organizations that you've worked with uh through your journey so it's an interesting one Lorks at at norwich chris he was he was really um sort of he would let me mold my own philosophy because he realized that i was still a a young coach and he didn't try to sort of hammer his philosophy onto me or onto anybody else for that matter so I would sort of spend a lot of time observing him and asking him and looking at what he was doing. So as a prop, as an automatic byproduct, I sort of inherited a lot of what he did. Um, but it was, it wasn't really until, uh, I was out in China where I went to, I went to my first club in China and then I was there a matter of weeks cause I made a real, real mess of things with a manager. The the, man, the manager there at the the first club I went to was was a really he was he was a he was a local coach. Um, he wasn't a particular fan of um, sort of outside influence. It was a president that had took me to the club, um, and it was it was almost a, a recipe for disaster before it started. But the way I went about that as a recent as a recent graduate wasn't um, sort of in line with what I'd been taught or sort of within my best interest in terms of I was a bit of a bull in a china shop and the the practice that I was seeing in front of me wasn't what I had uh, sort of come to know as gold standard so I I immediately sort of put my opinions across which which was completely the wrong thing to do um I should have absolutely took on this sort of softly softly slowly slowly approach and 
tried to get the manager on side. I should have listened to Dale Carnegie and his book earlier than I did. Um, but the second club, uh, I was very lucky in that the assistant coach was a Portuguese coach um, who had some 30 years in the, of experience in the top league in Portugal, a guy called Flores Scap, who's now a really, really good friend of mine. And we were the only two foreigners working in this football club in this small middle of nowhere city in China. So we were basically in each, each other's pockets for, um, for 10 months. And he, he, he introduced me to tactical periodization, um, which is obviously one of many models, but that was sort of the model that he championed and being from Portugal and he was Portuguese, it sort of made sense. And what that sort of opened my eyes to and taught me about was the, the whole process and the end product in, in terms of what the ultimate aim is. Um, and then I quickly sort of began to realize that I'd completely overestimated my sort of role in, in a team. And I, th I think a lot of us can be guilty of that in terms of the importance we put on strength and conditioning in sports science, especially in a sport that's as intricate as, uh, as football. Um, so that, that was a really good eye opener for me. Um, in terms of learning about that integration and appreciation of what others have to do and what the what the end goal is for the uh, for the sort of adaptation of performance enhancement in football, really. And you gave me so many different things to chew on, um, but I'm going to go back towards the the beginning of your response a little bit uh, to maybe put the audience sort of in a, a frame of mind. Um, what what age were you when you were out in China? Just a uh, get a better idea of i was 22 so i was a young guy <laughs> yeah so like i and then uh how was it years later when you read like dale carnahy's whether it's like how to win friends and influence people or like was it pretty soon or no it was it was uh it was pretty it was pretty soon after um it was a recommendation from a a well-known uh strength and conditioning coach in the uk called nick grantham i follow a lot of his stuff and that's sort of one of the books that he puts out there is um, sort of pivotal to sort of uh, developing your, your soft skills, if you like, as a coach. What resonated with that as I was kind of following your own coaching journey is that this is a similar journey and story that so many other coaches can replicate and make. And we all have shared right in our own sort of journey of getting somewhere and and maybe the environment is not the the particular way that we learned it or the system isn't, you know, uh, up to what you, we might particularly hope or imagine or think it should be. And, you know, like all of us, you know, we take this sort of hammer and nail approach to it very early on in our career. And then you start to learn sort of the soft skills, the, you know, the, the nudging, the massaging of a philosophy, uh, a, uh, a best practice, a way of doing some things. So I love your analogy of a bull in a china shop because I, you know, I, it draws so many comparisons to some of my own mistakes I've made in my young coaching career as well. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's. I think it's a, it's a pretty apt one for a lot of recent graduates. I guess uh, it's interesting as well. There's that, that graph that's sort of doing the rounds on social media now as well. Um, I know Tom Williams up at Toronto put it up there um, not long ago. And it's that sort of U-shaped curve on a graph, which the Y-axis is the perceived competence. And then along the bottom, you've got years of experience. 
And then, you know, when you're at sort of zero, one and two years, you're, you're at the height of the left side of the U and then you swoop down to when you realize you don't know a lot at all <laughs> before you're 20 years into it and you realize you've got a bit more sort of knowledge under your belt. And I think that sort of rings true for a lot of guys as well. You mentioned in that response as well, kind of the scope of where we're going to explore a little bit throughout this show. And that was this tactical uh, periodization and the preparation and the work that you do being sort of multifaceted in that, especially within football. And, and again, you'll have so much more experience discussing this than I do just because of your nature of the sports that you work with. Um, but, you know, I think it's certainly in America, um, it's very easy for us in strength and conditioning to sort of think that collegiate strength and conditioning is the only scope of things that will help performance enhancing enhancements. And, uh, and I think as you start to work in very complex systems, i.e. football clubs and organizations, that there's so many different facets that go into uh, enhancement of athletic performance. Um, and that strength conditioning, at least from the strength sides, sometimes when you when you look overseas, takes a little bit more of a backseat role to some of the other things. And I'd, I'd love for you to kind of riff on sort of where you see what you might think of in gym strength conditioning. And obviously having experience as a, as a fit, fitness coach and the planning of the various sort of energy system development sort of plans that you need to do. What is sort of, uh, if you were to lay the groundwork, what is, you know, tactical periodization? And then how does it fit within the system of what you're currently doing at, uh, at your current organization? Yeah, so tactical periodization. I should, I should say, like, tactical periodization is obviously one model of many. Um, I think the, the reason I've sort of taken to it as sort of one of, the, one of the best available at the moment, especially within football, is, is the fact that it's not a blanketed approach it's not this sort of one size fits all where it, it is a model but it's driven by the head coach's philosophy and the way he wants his his team to play basically so you immediately have this differentiation between coaches and you don't have to necessarily have this sort of carpet bomb approach to which uh, to which a lot of models can can tend to be and um it, it basically tactical periodization within football it basically breaks down the game into its four key moments um it, it isolates team sort of unit entry unit and individual situations and and then you'll you'll display that in training and uh, how you want that to look in games and particular games and particular opponents um now how that works with sort of integration in terms of our sort of energy system development and gym work is it's basically trying to be complementary so rather than trying to become almost departmentalized and sort of closed off from one another, I think it serves to, to increase the amount of integration that we have in terms of our application. So we could, we can look to, for, for example, for our energy system development, we can try and be as specific as possible with uh, situational, uh, situational drills in training. So, you know, if, if, if we wanted to do a certain amount of uh, aerobic work, running over longer distances, less changes of direction, more velocity type work, you know, you could do that on a specified field using higher numbers. 
you could manipulate the amount of time you're going to play that game for. You can manipulate the amount of touches. You can manipulate the goal sizes. You can manipulate um, overload of players on one team. The other team, you, you can do an unknown amount of things. But what it all comes back to is that game model and is it a transferable drill to what you're trying to do in the upcoming game or upcoming fixtures? Um, now, on the flip side of that, I think our gym work, we do take it away from uh, what, what, what's going to happen on the field because sort of true sort of strength work in a football setting is one of the only, is one of the only things that you can't really get through football. You need, you need to take yourself away from the field from that and you need to get under load and lift load and push and pull and squat and lunge and do everything that we, we all do within strength and conditioning. So um, while it lends itself to be as integral as possible, there's still components of that sort of performance model that you need to take away from take away from the game and the sport itself. Yeah, no doubt. And, you know, I, I think some of the things and sort of the narrative that we use here within our my own organization is just really trying to consolidate our training stressors. So if we know that, you know, out on the basketball court or, or elsewhere, that it was going to be a pretty physical day and we're going to get a little bit more uh, transition sort of offense and it's going to be a lot more running up and down the basketball court, then that gives the various support staff a better understanding of sort of how we can complement what is going to happen on their competitive or training environment, i.e. the basketball court or the baseball or the softball field, and then try to mold our training to be complementary of it versus, like you said, a, a carpet bomb approach where maybe they're working on high velocity running and we're working on speed and so you know the PT or their you know their athletic trainers is working on regeneration and we're all confused and you know mismatched if you will um i i think this centers to my next question is that and it's almost like a chicken or an egg sort of question but so much of that decisions i think is dependent on the sort of the acceptance of the information that you present to I, the head coach or the manager. And especially in collegiate sport where, you know, a lot of times the technical tactical decisions are implemented and made at the head coach level. How influential are you? Or, you know, like when you sit down at that table and you're discussing the sort of logistics of a training schedule, I mean, is it derived solely from you is it a collaborative team effort i think a lot of the audience is unfamiliar to that sort of collaborative approach but i would love to hear sort of the the process of deciding or when you brought that to your organization how receptive they were or for coming to the information that you were presenting yeah I, this is why i am such a fan of tactical periodization sort of as I sit here in March of 2017 because it ultimately is devised upon the coach's philosophy so when you go and put that in front of your head coach and say right I would suggest this way of working the whole thing is based around your philosophy and the way you want your team to play you're going to struggle to meet a head coach who turns around and goes mm, not sure about that <laughs> they're, they're immediately they're immediately going to buy into that um, or a variation of that. Um, and we're quite lucky here in that our, our coach is really, really open. And there's no sort of closed doors. The discussions we have are, 
are really open-ended. We discuss different, you know, possibilities, permutations of things that we're going to do, um, what we think might happen, and then afterwards what actually happened, how we can change that next time. Um, so a lot of what happens on the training field will come from him in terms of the narrative, in terms of, right, this last game, um, our, you know, low block wasn't good enough. Um, we got overran. We This happened, that happened. We need to do this, this, and this. Now, from a methodological point of view, I'm not going to argue that because he's the head coach. He's the technical, tactical driver of this team. So I need to support that. I might then just go to him and say, right, well, these are our numbers or these are the noises that the boys are making in the changing room or this is happening. I would suggest possibly, um, you know, for this drill, rather than doing two lots of 15 minutes of two touches, can we do... Uh, can we split that up further into three lots of eight minutes with three touches? So we slow the game down and we have more breaks depending on what the data previously is saying and prospectively what we might be doing. Um, so from that perspective, we're, we're really open and collaborative and um, it's just being respectful that he's ultimately the head coach and I'm there to support him and it's not the other way around. You know, and, it, and you were discussing towards the end of that response, obviously changing biomotor outputs, force, speeds, power, uh, distance, running, um, through a number of different soccer-specific sort of drills. And I think, you know, certainly that is prevalent um, within sort of American sport, perhaps to football. But what you might not see necessarily is that same integrative approach to uh, the development of basketball drills. Hey, coach, I think we should do a, a small sided games only at half court. We should go, you know, like, so how important would you say is studying from materials of strength and conditioning versus studying materials of sort of sport drills within that, that sport specific model, if you will? Does that make sense? I know that seemed like even on my own sort of like uh, rambling of it, I'm like, I don't know if that makes sense. But hey. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting, the first part of that question. So what you were saying about that integrative ap- approach in, in American sports. I was watching a documentary, I forget the name, uh, American documentary on the Arizona Cardinals. Is that where Buddy Morris Yes, is? correct. Yes. Uh, and it sort of, there was a scene where he, he's walked out to the head coach in training. And he's sort of, you know, like a a situation where we've all been. And he's sort of gone up to the head coach and gone, look, you know, the loads have been quite high last few days. Is there any opportunity that we can sort of um, slow this down or lower the intensity? And the coach has just point blank turned around and gone, no. It was end of conversation. And it was, you know, that happens. That happens all the time. But it's, I think that integrative approach is is what's going to win out in the end, you know, and the, the, the sort of sports drill versus strength and conditioning book argument is, I think it's just learning the sport. Like anybody who knows that sport, like if I was to come and work in basketball tomorrow, I'd be terrible. You'd fire me. You'd, you'd be like, what is this guy doing? Because I, I wouldn't, I would not know where to start with a basketball team from a sports perspective. Obviously I could go in there as a completely raw S and C coach um, we could do everything that we do as strength and conditioning coaches, which is squat, lunge, hinge, push, pull, power clean, snatch. We do mass runs. We do intervals and everything else. And that, that would be fine. But would it be as 
specific as it could be or as integral as it could be or as efficient as it could be probably not so i think obviously as a grounding you need that strength and conditioning knowledge and you know that's integral that's your foundation but when, as soon as you can start to to sort of learn the sport and then look to manipulate the variables within it to bring about your physical adaptations to make your training process more um, efficient then i think the, the the more you can do that if it's applicable the better what you said first that really resonated during that response to me was you know if you can learn and then manipulate and one of the ways that you can learn with drills you know if if you were to come in and start immediately working with the basketball team or or a foreign sport that you haven't had much experience is just through observation right and not just observation with your own sort of coaching eye but with devices like IMU devices, GPS, accelerometry, uh, data that you can start to, and this is starting to happen more and more at, at universities and um, across America, but certainly in professional sport is sort of the categorization of sport drills with various biomotor outputs. So if it is a particular basketball drill, What's the player load on that drill average? What's the uh, the the uh, the changes of directions? What's the excels or decels on that drill? And even if you don't really know the sport right away, you can start to build a database based on the norms of the teams that you work with, and then start to fit that sort of structure to you know essentially a tactical. Uh, periodization model so that you can perform the best when you need to go and perform the best which sort of lends yeah I know which I think lends me to my next question which is the sort of collection of information via technologies um, and how you use that objective information to audit your training program so you know, without getting too sciencey, although I'm kind of a nerd myself, I mean, what are you guys using different sort of technologies? Uh, if we were to go down this rabbit hole a little bit to help objectify what you guys are doing on the pitch? Yeah, so we use uh, we use Statsports uh, GPS systems and polar heart rates every day in training. So each one of the boys will be wearing one of them. Um, so that can sort of help us to build this catalog of tactical drills and and what the what the variables that we put into these drills like you like what you've already alluded to um what that's going to do to that situation i think the biggest um the biggest thing with the with technology now is the physical domain of it i think we know so from a from a soccer perspective Sorry, I keep bringing it back to soccer, but this is sort of my sport. <laughs> no, and I want it to be in that that sport. So please, I mean, speak from your experience by all means. No, so yeah, I mean, the crossover is massive. I'm sure similar things would happen in basketball, hockey, or whatever sort of sport you were to go into. But in soccer, if we if we close the pitch up, for example, and we put a touch limit, so a one-two touch limit, and we put multiple goals in that sort of pitch we know that we're going to get a lot more change of direction we're going to get a lot more sort of uh, what we traditionally use sort of anaerobic bounce um, and we're going to get much more of a sort of loading effect whereas if we were to do the opposite of that and turn it onto a big pitch we were to use big goals two single goals 
and we were to use an open touch limit, we know that we're going to get a lot more high velocity running and less change of direction. That's our sort of physical outcomes from those drills. But in terms of what we do with these physical variables, how that manipulates tactical outcomes, I think that's like, that's personally for me speaking, that's what I'm trying to develop now. So is what I'm doing to these drills physically still complementing what the coach is doing? Is it overloading that tactical principle? Is it underloading that tactical principle? Um, and I think when you sort of start to crack that and you get the physical and tactical outcomes and you have quantifiable ways of understanding what it is you're doing on all fronts, I think that's like, that's like a really truly efficient training system. I think when you can start to match those objective quantification of the drills through a variety of different KPIs or outputs to the plan that the head coach or manager is trying to implement on a weekly basis, it only supports their vision through data, um, but also sort of you, you get at the general idea that you are at where you need to be from, uh, you know, whether we want to kind of go down the routes of acute or chronic ratios, or if we're trying to raise training load or decrease training load, you, you have the numbers, you have the data to be able to otherwise intervene when we need to as, you know, prep coaches, um, but at the same time, allow the coach to do what they're very, you know, what, what they excel at, which is coaching soccer or whatever other sport that they're trying to do. We just sort of sit in the background as background computer processes, monitoring the work and, and jumping in or intervening when we can, when it's appropriate to make sure that the athletes from a biological standpoint are getting the adaptive stimulus that they need. Um, so well, I mean, certainly well said, um, I, uh, I'd, I'd love to sort of explore it cause I know we, we've, uh, we discussed a little bit of this off air. Um, and then I think you also shared it on a similar other podcast, but with this information coming in and, you know, the various different data points that, that you can get if you wanted to really sort of, uh, deliver yourself a headache uh, with all the various uh, points. I mean, data collection, analyzation of this information is damn near a full-time job, let alone being on the pitch, going through fitness drills, going in the gym, training various different uh, qualities. I mean, how do you balance the data and the collection, the interpretation of it, the delivering of that to a coach or to a training program with the other various sort of job demands that you have that we all share? That's, that's a, a good question, mate. And that's something that I've sort of dabbled with in the last couple of years while I've been here. Um, purely because, like you say, you do generate a hell of a lot of numbers over a single session. And then when you look at multiple sessions and multiple weeks, the numbers get ridiculous. And trying to sort of stay on top of that is is very difficult. So I think it's just outlining like what you alluded to as well, sort of key metrics that you're going to continually look at in terms of where you're at. Um, obviously delve into a lot of what Tim Gabbett's done in terms of the acute chronic stuff and the 10% ratios and everything in terms of that sort of readiness. And also get to know the coach very well in terms of what he wants to know. So like for, as an example, at the moment, we, we, all the numbers we collect, all the numbers we collect will go to the first team sports scientist. So he has all that information. 
So he can generate whatever he wants to generate with that information because he's much smarter than me and he's able to do that. In terms of our coach, our coach just gets averages. He'll only get training averages. Um, that's to make sure not to overload him. Because if I give him every number from every player, that's going to completely blow his brains up. And so I think just identifying what they, what certain parties need to know. Um, so the coach will get training averages. He'll get, you know, what's our average high intensity running on a match day minus four. Okay, where were we today? Were we up or down? And where were we in relative terms to the last few days and weeks? Um, and what does that mean going forward? on whatever training day you might be on. Then to the players, the players will get a, a kickback of the information. They'll get a simplified version as well, um, just to make sure that they're bought in. Um, I'm sure a lot of people, maybe not in North America, you guys have some real professional athletes there, but here the buy-in to start with the GPS was suspect and it was almost a battle every day to get the boys wearing it. But then when you consistently get it on them, get it on them, get it on them, kick the data back to them, kick the data back to them so they get used to it and they're actually interested in what they've done in training that day or that game, then I think you're, you're beginning to win. And then, like I said, to so the first team sports scientist, he gets all the numbers um, because he's, he's awesome. Um, he sort of, when players are going between squads, he's able to work out where they're at, what they can handle and um, what they can't handle, basically. Yeah. And I, I think you said something that, that sort of paralleled my own sort of journey in that when I first began uh, collecting information, reporting information, um, I think the error for me was a um, not having a very central question that I was trying to answer. So it lends itself to a lot of collection in the beginning. And then as you start to collect and, and piecing the dots together with practice and training and, and various sort of uh, interventions, it naturally you want to share that information and it lends itself to overwhelming a head coach that is otherwise very busy with their own sort of work and recruiting and talent identification that, hey, you know, in, in the, the last, I'd say, five, six years, it's been, you know, really trying to have a better funnel where, like you said, that first team sports scientist sits on top of the funnel and gets every little bit of that information. And then you channel down the funnel and it's, you know, maybe it's your ATCs, your physios, your strength conditioning coaches. And then further down might be the players. And then lastly, as it exits the tunnel uh, or through the funnel, it might be your head coach that receives just maybe one to two performance indicators that they care about and that funnel might be different for every organization for every coach and i think it's important to know um the the coaching staff that you work with um what you know like do, do you find what what sort of I, without getting too nerdy um although I, I i love it so this is primarily the show is to scratch my own itch uh per se but what uh what sort of things are important for you as far as indicators of performance things you might collect whether it's session rpe if it's rpe in general if it's heart rates if it's various metrics uh through your uh monitoring systems i mean what what interests and captures your eye as a uh practitioner um i think this is Again, it's a good question, mate, and it's an ever-evolving question, you know? Yeah. Like, whatever I say now, I could listen to that in two years' time and think, what 
on earth is he talking about? Yeah. You know, especially with the rapid rate of development in technology at the moment. Totally. Um, so for me at the minute and our coach, um, we, we only look at a certain, we, we look at five metrics, uh, selected few metrics. Um, I suppose the most debatable of them uh, would be, we use a coach's rating of perceived exertion, which is mine. Um, now, I know a lot of people are probably like, what is this guy talking about? But I'm obviously working in an Arabic country where the guys, probably half the guys have good English. The other half have very scratchy English. Um, and also we're in a country where there isn't a sports science degree yet. I'm not even sure if there's like a sports science sort of high school, college yeah. entry certificate. I don't know what it would be, but there's there's not a lot of that here, you know? So the boys haven't necessarily had a lot of exposure to it. So they're not as well educated as other guys that would be in North America, Europe and other places. Um, and it's a funny story. I remember a couple of pre-seasons ago when I was here and we just finished a, an eight-minute block of uh, maximal aerobic speed runs. 30 seconds on, 30 seconds off. Uh, guys were running in groups. Uh, I went with a middle group and I remember finishing that eight-minute block of running with them getting to the end and feeling like my heart was about to explode i was <laughs> rolling around on the floor like i was struggling in a big way and uh, one of the other lads in the group was in a similar state to me and I, as i was on the floor i was like oh you know omar how much was that one really easy 10 really hard you know struggling to get my words out and he's there going <laughs> uh, uh, three and i was like <laughs> right we're not Either I'm not putting this across properly or you're not listening to me well enough, you know, but no matter what it was, it, that wasn't working well. So now I try and sort of perceive the drills um, from my experience when I was playing football when I was younger. And then obviously the sort of sports science insight, I guess, in terms of what's happening to the guys within those drills. And then I formulate uh, a rate and a perceived exertion at the end of the session. Um, alongside that, we use simple session time. And then the GPS metrics we use are total distance, high intensity distance, and total number of accelerations and decelerations relative to the session time. But that is something that I'm starting to go away from and starting to edge towards um, another metric called explosive distance from Statsports, which has been uh, really useful. But um, yeah, like I said, mate, it's ever-evolving uh, subject. And like I said, I'll probably listen back to this in a couple of years' time and scratch my head. I just think with basketball as a scope here uh, or a frame of reference, I mean, you know, in, in the last several years, we've seen more emergence of professional and collegiate sport teams, acceptance and usage of technology to quantify the external workloads of their athletes and that's you know three four five years ago um so i can't imagine now as things technology gets cheaper and more advanced and moore's law that you know we're going to start to see greater algorithms greater technology smaller accelerometry units that uh the the state of wearable measure measurables um and wearables if you will um, is is only going to continue to rise and become commonplace. Um, I, I'm I'm curious when you were saying you were doing your thirty thirty. At what at what percentage of MAS were you guys going for for that 
lad to to say that it was a three out of ten or so. Oh, we were we were pushing like one twenty. We were we were up there, and this is this is Dubai heat in September. Anybody who's yeah. been here in that month will know what that's like, and it was pretty excruciating. Yeah, I, I have a hard. It's either have a hard time believing that's a three, or very humbling how quickly uh, we as practitioners can get out of shape if. Uh, uh, humbling when you're standing next to elite athletes in some respects. Yeah, mate. I, the only thing that I sort of um, took comfort in was that he was rolling around on the floor next to me. Uh, <laughs> if it had been sort of stood up, giving me quite a calm three, I'd have been a bit more worried. But he was sort of flapping around on the floor as well, so I knew um, something wasn't right with that three. So, <laughs> yeah, for real. I, uh, I I heard on another podcast um, you shared how not only with technology and the emergence and more things coming in, um, how, you know, how challenging that can be. And I am no different. I think with more wearables and more technology um, and vendors coming in to really start to quantify and audit what we do as practitioners, that it lends itself to um, sort of being difficult to stay up with it and to follow things like this. So I guess my question would be, what, what resources, what websites, what mediums do you look to to continue your own education and stay abreast to sort of where technology and integrative sports science and performance is going? I think the biggest thing, mate, is interacting with other guys and interacting with guys that are doing things that you're not necessarily doing in terms of exploring your options. So I remember a few years ago, like I'd be on social media or I'd be speaking with someone or I'd be reading something. And I'd be like, Oh shit, they're using GPS. Like, what does that mean? And then, it, you know, when I was younger, I was, it was like guard up. It was like, Oh no, you know, scary. Don't want to know about it. Whereas now I'll just dive in and be like, Oh, can you tell me about this? Can you tell me how you're using it? I'll be, you know, it would be great to hear about what you're doing or whatever. And then, you can sort of take that and then you can look at the various research and blogs and everything else that go alongside it and try to sort of formulate your own opinion on it. And then obviously you've got to go from there to then your own environment and how you might plug that in. And I think there's a, there's a process for, for the sort of integration of technology. And it, it starts from that sort of solid base of research in terms of, is it reliable and valid and, and then you look at uh, other practitioners in the field, you know, in terms of a technology perspective, you look at someone like Carl Val, who's like incredible when you read a lot of his stuff. And, and then somebody who's a bit more specific to me, you'd look at someone like Dave Tenney. How's he implementing that in a football environment? And then you can start to strip it back and see if it's uh, if it's suitable for your environment, I guess. Yeah. And I think the gem in that of what you said is at least what resonates with me is just to look a little bit on the fringe of other practitioners and which is sort of the the reason of this show is to to have people like yourself come on and and to to spend an afternoon and talk about football preparation um which is otherwise not a sport that we have here at wichita state but to share similar conversations with other practitioners and that's partially was one of my reasons of going out to to dave's uh seattle sports side weekend you know very sort of oriented around football and the preparation for it but 
the more you, you you start to integrate yourself with professionals, I think the more you find that there's similarities. And then you have people like yourself, like yourself uh, in what you said with Carl, who will check and balance, you know, technologies and, and various practitioners that might use it in their own domains. And then you start to kind of connect the pieces. I, I, I think what you said was brilliant and, uh, and certainly applicable to, to all coaches regardless of what sport that you might work within. Um, what, just as I sort of kind of come towards, you know, what is otherwise the, the tail end of this, this show, um, just describing and going through, and I know this is sort of a wide ranging sort of question, if you will, but, you know, we've talked technology, we've talked, tactical preparation and, and periodization. And we've talked a little bit about your background, but ultimately the show is about getting to the root of it, which is you as a practitioner, you as a coach, you as a sports scientist, what, you know, whatever title we might align ourselves to, but with your purpose, you know, like, and I feel like everybody has a purpose, but when you go in or you're on a training pitch or you're on a training session, I mean, can you describe what, your purpose is i know that's wide ranging but that's so deep that's so deep <laughs> um i think everybody that's involved in that team environment is after the same thing in terms of they want to be able to sort of positively affect others and they want others to positively affect them in this sort of sporting environment and i guess if we use the word purpose it would i, I just want to go in and positively influence that team in terms of go in, be nice and bouncy, energy, get everybody working together, make sure you're sort of going towards where you want to be going. What would what would you describe as a as a sort of purpose for a strength and conditioning coach? I think uh, very initially it was to come in and you know, be instrumental in winning championships, right? That was, that was my young sort of naive, you know, right out of grad school sort of approach. And I think as I've hopefully, I knock on wood here, matured a little bit that it is much more about the supporting of the athlete in the attainment of what their goals are and to support and sustain what their dreams and their, their, their purpose. So it's, I know that seems maybe potentially waffling on my end, but it's, it's to support them ultimately and help them achieve what their own purpose is. And I think it comes back to communication with an athlete and the rapport building and the relationship that you build with them. Because to think that especially from 19 to 22, which is the age demographic that, you know, I, I work with here in, in collegiate sports is that, you know, that purpose for each one of the athletes that I work with will differ from year to year, will differ from team to team. And it's almost impossible for me to understand and know what that athlete's purpose or their reason to go into sport, or why they're actually here um, without sitting down and having those intimate conversations and, and exploring their backgrounds. I think, you know, like if I were to allude to another book, I think that's why 
you know, Brett Bartholomew's book has resonated so much in our industry right now and it's been shared so much on social media because while there is technology and while there is approaches to training from a technical, tactical X's and O's and technology, we still need to sit down and have conversations, like you said, and showing up in the locker room and the washrooms and, and, and talking to the athletes primarily. Yeah, I think that's a that's a phenomenal answer and it's spot on. It's it is a supporting role, isn't it, in terms of trying to give these guys the best opportunity to go and do what they do. So and it's that what you've alluded to towards the end there is something that we've come full circle on and it's something that's particularly interesting in terms of our sort of wellness monitoring, if you want to call it that wellness or performance monitoring or whatever sort of terminology people want to use with it um in terms of that sort of readiness to train and we we went to sort of a, a jump protocol um we tried the the simple questionnaires um and everything just came back to the same conversation so just being in the locker room i can't believe i just used the word locker room being in the changing room being in the changing room when the boys are coming in they're not all going to come in together so make sure you get them individually, have a chat with them. Even if the boys aren't speaking English, it's thumbs up, thumbs down. You learn a little bit of Arabic or whatever language you need to learn. And then you just slowly build the rapport. You get to know them. You get to know what they need. Um, and it's, it sort of goes from there. But like you say, I think that, that supporting role to, – to where they're trying to go is uh, is the, the pivotal part of the whole process. Yeah, you know, to bridge on top of that, you know, like and I, a different maybe for different ages um, and levels of professional sport, and I, I, I see it parallel a little bit here in the collegiate is that what you might get from an, an older aging athlete, right? It the the difference for them, their why might be. I just want to play one more year so I can provide a paycheck to my family and send my daughters off to college, you know, like a little bit more money in the bank uh, and, and hang on. That's that's the reason why I'm playing. I just need to stay healthy and bank a little bit more money where, you know, you might have an academy player coming up. And I, I speak with no experience with academies by any means, but drawing parallels to our freshmen and sophomore athletes, right? Like They're vying for a starting position. They're vying to make a difference on the team so their training reasons are very different from ages you know freshman sophomore 19 to 20 to 21 to 22 year olds and knowing what their why is and why they're coming in and being flexible enough with that and having that sort of athlete-centric model in trying to support their why through the various knowledge bases that we have so it all aligns with what the coach's interest is i.e winning um i think can be a very sort of powerful funnel that allows for everybody to perform at their best for the various reasons they want to perform at their best yeah that's that's an interesting one and something that you were sort of alluding to there in terms of that coach athlete relationship and that head coach athlete relationship athletes can make very different noises to different people and you know i can go into a change room one day and i can be like you know how are you? I was school. I can ask them what they've got going on. If I know they've got an exam going on or, you know, the sister's getting married or whatever, like bring up a conversation, ask them how they are. And they could be like, oh, you know, my hamstring's really tight. Uh, I tried running this morning. didn't, didn't go well or, you know, something to that effect. Um, but then 
if, if we have a conversation involving the head coach, then that's their, that's their boss. That's the guy who's going to put them in the game or take them out of the game. So then, you know, that tight hamstring suddenly disappears. And then you've got to be like, well, hang on, you know, like I understand your point of view, but, you know, I'm supporting his point of view in terms of the head coach. So you've got to, I think it's a, it's a fine, fine balancing role. Yeah, and you named it, you know, a balancing role. And I, I've certainly seen that here with what sort of information gets shared, right? And we do, like you said, you know, we've experimented with wellness questionnaires that, that go into, you know, mood and, and attitude and readiness to train and sleep, sleep quality. And, you know, it's, you know, that information be it maybe potentially a little invasive in some respects with it goes to sleep. But, you know, if, if you go out as a practitioner and say, Hey, you know, like readiness looks down, we did, uh, questionnaires, whatever, um, jump, uh, sleep is poor. And that information wrongly gets interpreted by a head coach that they're staying up late or not prioritizing their performance and rips an athlete because of it. You're never going to have valid data ever again from that athlete uh, if it was wrongly communicated. So it's it's a, it's a, a balancing act of when to report, what to report, when to just say someone looks off versus supporting it with information. Um, it's a challenge. It's, uh, you've made some good points there, and especially um, I can think of some scenarios this year where guys have come in tired or. Guys are coming real lethargic, and some of our guys are going through national service. And the, I'll be in the changing room before the before the training and everything else. So I'll hear what they will have done. They might have done, you know, a ten mile hike or uh, a three kilometers, you know, all out sprint or whatever. And then the coach can be like, "Oh, well, you know, he, he's been lazy." This is a bit of an extreme example, but you know, if we go out to the training, oh, he's been lazy, been lazy. and then that's when you've got to be you've got to step up and you've got to support the other angle you've got to support a player and and not be that yes man and sort of tuck yourself under the wing you've got to go, well actually he did this this and this it's not his fault and you, i think that's where like what you said before we've alluded to that balancing role you've got to play both ends i don't think you can sort of obviously you're aligned to the head coach you're part of his support staff but being that yes man is not going to is not going to sort of do him any favors in the long run. So I think, again, that balancing act and feeding appropriate information at appropriate times is, is critical. And I think having the receptiveness and the ego of the other end of the equation is certainly important too. Um, the receptiveness of that information from a head coach as well is just as critical as the delivering of that information from a, otherwise a support staff too. So, uh, Absolutely. Look, I, uh, I want to share a couple of different things. Um, you can – so I first came ac across some of your information via your Twitter and I wanted to share that at Amish Monroe 90. Um, yeah. Uh, are there any other ways, you know, if someone was listening to this show and had a little bit more uh, football-specific questions or wanted to reach out um, and contact you, what's the, what's the best ways that people can get in touch with you? Twitter would be the best one. I mean, Twitter for me, I, I just use Twitter as this big platform to share and ask questions and listen to what people are saying and, you know, transfer information. So that's probably the best one. I'm also on uh, LinkedIn, just my name, Hamish Monroe. Feel free to to get me on there. Um, so Twitter and LinkedIn would probably be the the best places to go um, 
to, to find me. So I know via your Twitter bio that it links to your LinkedIn, but uh, I'll include that in the show notes as well, as well as your um, Twitter uh, handle. Um, but Amish, I just wanted to thank you for coming on, man. It's uh, It's been a, a great hour of getting to, to know you a little bit and listen to the materials that you've happened to share um, and I'll, I'll try to include uh, as much of the information and maybe link uh, to some of the materials uh, that is on complimentary training, uh, at least the slides of the uh, tactical periodization model that you presented. But um, thanks so much for coming on the Decoding Excellence show. I really appreciate your time and, and uh, the experiences and wisdom that you happen to share. No, thanks. Thanks for having me on, Adam. It's it's been great, mate. It's been great chatting. Um, and you know, just a collective thanks to you from everybody else, sort of listening to these as well. You know, guys like you, sort of putting themselves out to to put out training resources helps a lot of people out and touches a lot of people. So it's um it's great what you're doing. So um yeah, keep it up and thanks again, mate. Appreciate it. Until next time, man. Let's uh, let's touch base again. Awesome. Thanks, pal. I want to thank strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist Amish Monroe for coming on the Decoding Excellence show. I took a lot away from this episode and just really appreciate the insights that Amish could share to the listening audience today. I think if you have any interest within technology or tactical periodization or just some of the simple lessons that you can learn as a sports scientist or a strength and conditioning coach to develop the relationships with your athletes that you work with or the coaching staff that you work uh, under or for. Like always, the Decoding Excellence show started as an exploration in the intangibles, the tools, the techniques, the tactics that world-class performers, strength and conditioning professionals, and sports scientists utilize on a daily basis. If you've taken anything away from this show today, please share this episode on your favorite social media of choice and go into iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Your reviews on iTunes help spread the show it helps gain a little bit more exposure so that other younger sports scientists and strength and conditioning professionals can find the show and begin immediately learning from some of the great guests that we've had on like Amish today and some of the other great guests that we've had on the show in the past like always thank you so much for listening to the show and let's keep evolving together